0: Chief Miller is dedicated to featuring the men and women of the fire service from around the world. Chief Miller has a family of content creators who feature great people doing great things, making the fire service a better place. Make sure to follow along as Chief Miller creates, shares, collaborates, and features the special people who call themselves firefighters. Follow along on Instagram at Chief underscore Miller. Find him on Twitter at Chief underscore Miller underscore. Like him on Facebook at Chief underscore Miller number one and watch for all the podcasts featured within the Chief Miller media family. Make sure to check out ChiefMillerApparel.com for all your fire service apparel needs. Hey Canners, it's time for 30 minutes of unadulterated and uncensored shenanigans. Get ready to call HR because you're going to need sensitivity training after this. Gear up because it's going to hurt worse than writ training in July. Welcome to the Can Man Radio Show with your host, Jason Liska. <laughs> And we're doing a two for tonight here in Daytona at Fire Rescue East 2020, and uh, we're going to continue this series we talked about earlier with the bull on mental health addiction and all of the stigmas attached to these complex problems that we face as public safety professionals, and I want to welcome you back to another great episode of the Man Radio Show. And tonight, we have a wonderful guest, someone who I was able to meet last year, who's had somewhat of a profound impact in my life, has had some really awesome insight, and has uh, become what I consider a good friend and uh, a sister to all of us in, in, in this brotherhood, this firehood, as Bull would like to call it. And that's Marie Guma. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, speak up a little. Don't be afraid. No, You've got a thank soft you. voice. So.
1: Here we are
0: in Daytona and you know, we didn't get to do this last year, and 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 I'm grateful that this past year has opened up the opportunity to podcast, to put perspectives of leadership, mentoring, and other aspects of the fire service that are very relevant to what we face today. And one of those aspects is exactly what we're gonna talk about this evening. Now we had Tom Bull here here up Tom Bull Hill here just a few minutes ago and we did a really great podcast with him. You guys came in at the tail end. What did you pick up from that?
1: It was it was heavy. The, the room was it felt heavy when when I walked in, Yeah. Um, you could tell there was a lot of emotion, a lot of passion uh, coming from the both of you. And um, I completely just walked into that vibe and, and, and felt it because I think it's the same fire burning inside of me too
0: and i noticed you were taking a lot of notes and you're you know you had a conversation with me earlier today about a a clinician you encountered that just fired you off you were so mad about what they were spewing out to our brothers and sisters and i'm like wait a minute is she bouncing in a good way heads going up and down or no 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 and i'm like oh no it's going up and down so we're okay i don't have to worry about mad marie so we're good but you know (laughs) and i'm
1: latin so you know when i'm mad it's bad (laughs) i know don't
0: piss off the latina it's a bad thing to do razor blades come out of nowhere switch blades the whole nine yards but you know what let's talk about you you've got a phd in clinical psychology why
1: so um, I actually did a PsyD. Uh, the difference between a PhD is, um, it's a doctorate in the philosophy of psychology.
0: See, there I go, I screwed it all up yet no, again. No, it's fine,
1: it's fine. Um, a, a PsyD is a doctorate in clinical psychology, meaning that that is somebody who wants to practice okay. and, ha- and do therapy as opposed to um, a, pay- a PhD is more interested in maybe teaching at the college level or doing research.
0: So you want the treatment route for sure.
1: I wanted the treatment route for sure. I do need to clarify that um, halfway through dissertation, which is a last once all the courses, everything's done. Yeah. Um, I was divorced and needed to start uh, working. Okay. So um, I actually did not complete my dissertation, which is what I am that is my goal for this year to start um, and do a study, uh, something firefighter related. Okay. Um, one of the ideas that I've had was that a lot of the guys that I've put in treatment um, from the fire service in the past couple of years have all been driver engineers. Really? So that is something that maybe I want to look into. Um, so there's a couple of, of, of things that um, you know, make me curious, uh, you know, the more exposure I have, the more I question, okay. you know, does each shift really have a personality? Does does your own personality um, accommodate whatever shift you're on? Mm-hmm. What happens if you switch shifts, if you go from a shift to C shift, like a shift, were the egotistical narcissistics. Now the C shift are the funny guys. Like, does it change? Like
0: Wow, I'm an A shifter, so <laughs> I guess I'm an egotistical narcissist. No,
1: no, I, that's not generalized. <laughs> I'm just saying. I, know, you know, I for, know. In every department, I'm sure is different. Yes. And, or is it? Like. Those are things I want to, you know, that interest me as well.
0: Let me help you out a little bit. I can tell you there's one of me in every department across this country, okay? And there's one of Bull and there's one of everybody. Each of us have a doppelganger in the fire service. And, you know, there there's an adage about B-shift that I won't share because it's offensive. And then A-shift, <laughs> then C-shift. I was a B-shifter for most of my career, if that tells you anything. All right? It wasn't until about four or five years ago that I moved to the A-shift and I realized I was on the A-squad. I don't know if that's good or bad, but you know what? It works because here I am today. What is it? that I'd rather have a whore for a sister than a brother on B-shift is one of the things that I always had to live with, okay? (laughs) And so the the sad reality of it is I think a lot of B-shifters can identify with that mindset because we were right in the middle, caught in the middle, the Black Sheep Squadron. At least that's the way it was uh, in the early days of my career. We were looked at as the renegades and the cowboys on B-shift. So just adding perspective to your study. And that being said, why firefighters?
1: So the The way that it all happened, um, when I uh, stopped going to school, I practiced with my masters for a total of eleven years, mm-hmm. including my practicum in the doctoral program, and um, I burnt out. I was working with DCF, I was working with the foster care system, with um, family court, um, and I I think my what drives me is justice. Okay. Um and it was very unjust and it burned me out. And I felt like no matter what I did, I was not gonna be able to make a difference. Um, I had 16 year olds that I would beg them, just hold on two more years where you can get up, out of your environment. Um, you, you have so much potential, you're intelligent, like you, you can create something for yourself. Um, and just life, their environment, and I, I just felt uh, I was much younger too, and mm-hmm. I felt like I just, it wasn't me, I couldn't make that difference. And eventually I burned out um, and I joined the substance abuse industry, which I thought, you know, I would never join that industry.
0: Why did you feel that way?
1: Because I felt like addicts were um, people that I didn't think I would be able to help. Okay. Um, first of all, we, in, in a clinical psych doctorate, um, we do not get taught how to uh, treat somebody with a substance abuse issue, mm-hmm. um, which is a huge problem because ma- you have master level clinicians who are currently seeing people who should be in, in treatment and aren't because they're just not educated on when to send somebody to treatment. Okay. Um, so you know they they think oh you know I'll send them when their life you know is completely upside down and uh they can actually go to treatment way before that and have much better prognosis and um and they just we're not just doing that we're not doing that and it's um and i think my industry's dropped the ball on on many things but that's definitely one of them um so why firefighters i joined the substance abuse industry. I was working for a treatment center that had a first responder track. And what I mean by track is that some of the groups were just for the first responders, um, but some of the other stuff was mixed in with general population. Okay. So that's a track. A program is where you have a uh, the full program, whether it be a Christian program, whether it be a first responder program, um, It means that you are with that group. You are never mixed with the general population. Um, So, And that's important for uh, group therapy efficacy, right? So when you're in group therapy, you want to be able to identify with the people in your group so that you can have insight and have growth. Sure. By other people's mistakes or by other people's insights or lessons that they've learned. Um, See, that that was me. I did that. I thought that way. Mm -hmm. So you're also not you're also thinking at the same time, wow, it wasn't just me that felt that way, that did those things. So it's very important when you are a first responder and you are in a group with 20 and 30 year olds who have never worked and never don't even know how to make their bed, you're not going to identify when you have been somebody who has been a functioning adult with a job, you know, up until for some reason something's taking you to this place. So
0: that creates a wall or a barrier between you and the people in that room and your ability to recognize, identify, and at least confront the problem. Because if you can't share it because you're not comfortable with the people you're in the room with, what's the point of the therapy session if it's not going to be beneficial for you?
1: Absolutely. Can you imagine sharing, you know, with some of the your humor as a firefighter in a group about a call that you went on can you imagine their faces
0: i often not talk about the calls i've been on with the people that are not affiliated with this profession because you know it's funny you say that because often you know when people say oh you're a fireman and i don't go broadcast it i mean sure every now and then i wear a shirt or i wear a hat that has a maltese cross on it is what it is right?
1: in a podcast
0: and the podcast and then people say (laughs) hey man you're a fireman well what's the worst fucking thing you've ever seen And it's like are you shitting me Now I gotta answer this question. And I don't want to talk about that with someone who, one, I see it every day. And I was telling Bull this in conversation. It's not, this is not a poor pity me moment, okay? You know, you don't forget the bad calls. You really don't forget the calls that impact you forever and ever and ever. They're there forever because they were that important regardless of the context. They had an impact and they, they are ingrained forever in your mind and your heart. But when you have to share it, and sometimes you know how we relate things. We joke, we laugh, we, we're comedic about it, like you said. How do you say that to the average Joe who thinks that now you're a heartless son of a bitch for talking that way? And they're thinking, oh, my God, this guy has no cooth, no tact, and really no social structure. Well, that's not the case because I do. I just don't know how to identify with you. I don't know how to talk to you on exactly. that level. And what, you know? that's
1: why a, a program is uh, important.
0: So the collaborative, and this is how we met and this is exactly how we met. Sam Eaton, someone I've known throughout my life, essentially, since I was a teenager. Vicki Shepherd, who was one of the first district chiefs uh, at one of the first stations I rode at where I met my wife when I was a, a volunteer with Palm Beach County. Um, Chris Bader, who I had the pleasure of meeting last year. Jacob Lee, who does excellent work with the Clinician Train the Trainer program. Dustin, who is a champion in that aspect as well. I mean, just several. Awesome, heavy hitters in the fire service and the connections they've made, um, let alone what they're going to do in the future. Talk about that. How did you make contact with the collaborative? What brought
1: you into that realm? So when I was with this treatment center and we had the first responder uh, track, I um, had some very good friends at Coral Gables um, Police. Mm -hmm. And um, so took the FOP president out to dinner and was telling him about this great program we had. And uh, he looked at me when I was done with my spiel and said, you know, I just don't think my guys are gonna ask for help. Really? And that shocked me. This was probably seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And it shocked me. And I said, you know, as a helper, as a clinician, as a, somebody who takes action, I said, well, what can I do? What can I do to reduce that stigma education okay. let me bring it in to your department start educating uh, then I got involved with uh, Key Biscayne fire rescue we okay. started doing community talks um, their calls for uh, 18 to 21 year olds um, had increased by 200 percent on their mental health calls Wow whether it was um, you know intoxication or a Substance abuse or um, they needed to narcan someone Kay. so th- we brought a um, Started doing community talks with kids from with uh, chief Eric Lang Kay. With kids that were 11 years old. Kay. They had to have a parent present Kay. and we would uh, talk about what was happening um, And then we would separate them and have the kids um, together and the parents together and just kind of give some ideas um, on on you know, what, what does the profile of a child who doesn't fall into substances look like? Interesting. Um, that kind of thing. So then I was called, um, I have a friend who, from many years ago, um, who works for Miramar mm-hmm. Fire Rescue, and he said, hey, we're trying to do this, um, you know, this peer support thing here in Miramar, and I, I see on Facebook that you're, you know, involved with uh, first responders, can you come uh, to one of our peer support meetings so i became their volunteer clinical director um, and then uh, doc- uh, J- assistant chief um, george gonzalez from davie fire rescue was in that meeting and he said you know um, there's a clinician awareness training coming up and this was um, in November of two, uh, 2017, mm-hmm. um, and they put the clinicians in bunker gear, and I was like, wait, just stop, that's it. That's all I need to know. Like, <laughs> I want be get in to, bunker gear. I get to wear bunker gear, I'm in. Like, that's it. That's, and the collaborative was putting on the clinician awareness training, and I met Dustin, I met Bader, I met Jeremy, I met Sam, um, and just automatically clicked, and um, I, said you know I'm here to help um, Jeremy said to me uh, you know uh, Captain Hurd said to me um, you're gonna help me teach we're gonna start teaching and I was like there's no way I'm like I'm just a clinician I that's probably the toughest crowd walk into as uh-huh. a clinician uh-huh. with a room full of firefighters yeah and have them listen to me yeah I'm like there's no way I'm not teaching Jeremy is hilarious and so the two of us we fight like brother and sister during the entire class We have so much fun with it um, and then I started thinking about why am I doing this why why is there such a very deep-seated passion for me to do this and um, When I got divorced my kids were four and five years old. Okay. They're now 15 and 16 Um I didn't ask for help when my husband left. Mm-hmm. I was the helper. I was the rock. Yeah. I was the person people called at two a.m., three a.m., um, for me to help them. And um, the the family priest said to me, "You're gonna, you're gonna fall. When you do, you need to call me." And I said, "I'm not gonna fall. I, I I'm good." So for an entire year, I didn't cry. I didn't cry. Um, I just kept on keeping on right Mm -hmm. i have a four and a five-year-old you gotta push um and i have to raise these two kids yeah and i have to get a job and i have to you know be the entire family for these kids
0: you can't fail them
1: exactly no there's that's not even an option so um i said okay well here we go and about a year into it um i was about to get onto the turnpike and i saw a rig And I looked at it and I said, I wonder how fast I have to go to hit it and not feel any pain. Oh my God. And I said at that moment, I need to go, I need to go talk to somebody. And I think that I identified so much with the, the not asking for help, the not not talking about, not being vulnerable Mm -hmm. to our humanity right because yeah. that's what we are um we're not superheroes and deputy chief uh, marcos osorio actually once said um
0: you mean the marco sitting next to me yes the <laughs> handsome guy right here yeah
1: he actually once said um we do su- superhero work but we're not superheroes
0: so i like to say this because bull and i had this conversation i hate being called a hero because I feel that sets a precedence of false expectation where when we fail, we're criticized at a higher level, at a higher, uh, with a higher intensity, okay? Often when people say, oh, you're a fireman, you're a hero. No, I'm just an ordinary guy that does an extraordinary job. Think about that for a second. Ordinary guy that does an extraordinary job because how many people run into burning buildings for a living? They work in the shittiest of circumstances to help revive that uh, opioid overdose with Narcan. Um, They cut people out of cars in a blinding rainstorm, snowstorm, whatever storm you want to call it, depending on what country or side of the country you live in. Okay, we do an extraordinary job, but you know what? We're just ordinary people, and we're trained to rise to that level to ensure that job gets done. And I think when you put that... That level of intensity on us, that expectation is where we see our greatest failures in our, in our rank and file because they feel like they're not living that expectation. What they see on TV, what they experience outside of this profession before they get into it, they're expecting to walk into that balls of the wall hero level shit. And what happens when they fail to meet that expectation? Do you think that leads to where they end up becoming depressed or they might fall into addiction or various other bad components to the service? Because there's plenty of it out there and it's something we have to face and realize. The expectations that are set for us are sometimes our greatest failures.
1: So I'll give you the perspective I think of a civilian Mm -hmm. Um, and it may just be me, but um, when I think of you as a hero, I don't think of you as a hero because of all you of all the lives you've saved. Okay. For me, I think of you as a hero because you're willing to go in to, to do the things that most people are not willing to do. So, you're willing to risk your life for complete strangers and their property. And that that's to yeah. me, is a hero. You know what? Whether you it, succeed or not? Yeah is actually not even something I think about.
0: I'm gonna give you that one.
1: <laughs> I'm gonna agree
0: to disagree, but because humility is a huge component um, to our service as well. And and you think about the tier one operators, you know, the, 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 the elite of the elite soldier and their silent professionals. And I almost feel like we need to rise to that challenge as well sometimes because We're not doing this for the recognition. We're not doing this for the accolades. We're doing this because we want to help people. And what greater gift than service is there? Okay.
1: I I get that. I am the exact same way. People say, you know, there's there's people that say, you know, we'll share their stories of things that I've helped them with. And I I get shy and embarrassed because it's like, that's not why I do this. Yeah. Um, That's that's not so I understand that the the, the um, you know I, I've had I mean I work in substance abuse so yeah. I've placed many people into treatment where um, on Christmases they're awesome because I get the you know three years nine years
0: um, of sobriety yeah
1: and it's yeah. like you saved my life or I didn't save your life you saved your life yeah. I just guided you and held your hand until you took over a, the, center took over.
0: the APA says 15 to 30% of first responders that have PTSD out there, 20% of those will have a coexisting substance abuse issue. What does that mean to you?
1: It means to me that people um, are coping with, with substances. Um, I think it's much higher than that. Um,
0: it probably is. This was research taken back in 2018 if i remember correctly yeah okay 2017 2018 when i researched it and it's the most relevant research i could find and i'm sure there's better research out there but from your perspective addiction is one of the biggest components of your treatment and this is why you've entered this new realm with bright life and we talked a little bit about it earlier Um, we sometimes fail to realize that the alcohol, the pills, the, the, the ideas that circulate around that mindset is the most destructive. And we think of it as a temporary uh, gap between us and our problems we can we can suffer in silence or we can suffer numb in a sense right so here we are we're talking about and, and for instance we're not just talking about alcohol let's talk about those of us that have been injured on the job that somehow develop an opioid addiction to pills okay well
1: and it's not somehow the, it, the, it
0: happens it's relevant.
1: it's two weeks as doctor prescribed mm-hmm Your body will go through withdrawals when you get off of it, Mm -hmm. which means your body has been, is now addicted to that pain med that you've been taking.
0: And now they're going doctor to doctor to doctor to try to get more.
1: Of course. Okay. And it's very expensive. And guess what? Heroin is five bucks. Yeah,
0: but it kills you faster. And you're addicted a hell of a lot quicker, right? And so now what else is out there though? We have more than just the opioids. We've got the benzos and we've got the amphetamines, okay? I know a lot of people that go out to try to get Adderall scripts. And what is that doing for them? Why is that helping them? It's not helping them. You know, I, I look at it from this perspective. I struggled for years going doctor to doctor looking for the right treatment for what I thought was clinical depression what I really, truly thought was depression, and I went almost 15, 20 years looking for the right doctor, and every doctor I went to was, here's a new medication to help with your feelings of depression. Here's another SSRI. You know, we'll do labs, and they never followed back up with me, and they just wrote me a script for a year, and they said, here, take this escitalopram, or take this, you know, Prozac, or take this Abilify, or take this medication, and it didn't help at some points I felt okay, but there came a threshold where it just stopped being effective. And let, let's talk a little bit about that. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of break the barriers down. And I, I finally got to the point where it was affecting my life, my family, and most recently even in the last six months. And it was a very big struggle. I was fighting a lot of stress and anger and hostility inside of me. And I was trying to figure out what was going on. I ended up going to see a, a, a clinical psychiatrist a nurse practitioner uh, trained in clinical psychiatry and when I sat with her with Sarah sitting next to me I said this is what I think is wrong but I've always felt like there's something else she looked at me and she goes there is said you're not depressed it's not depression she goes there's something going on and I want to test you for it all joking aside 42 years on this earth I never thought I would get the clinical diagnosis of ADHD and the amazing difference, the treatment that I've received from day one to now, I've noticed it. I still get angry. I still get mad. I i, I still sometimes lose my temper and, and yell when I shouldn't yell, right? But there's a different side of me that I, I find that is more engaged with getting things done and the task at hand and being involved. And it's Been an amazing difference but you realize that was almost 20 years of going doctor to doctor to doctor to try to figure out what the fuck was wrong with me and almost costing me my marriage pissing off my children they've seen me at my absolute worst and here we are today at 42 with somewhat of a solution and a path forward and why are we not doing this more often with our brothers and sisters out there
1: and i think it's really important to mention that you were going to general practitioners and not a doctor that specializes in psychotropic medications. Okay, you did. um, General practitioners went to med school, they did not specialize in uh, psychiatry. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're not going to go to a cardiologist when you are having issues with a knee.
0: No.
1: So, so in reality, psychotropic medication is extremely dangerous, extremely sensitive. Um, it is; It needs to be led by somebody who has extensive experience mm-hmm. and education on that. Um, and a lot of private practitioners are handing it out, not doing the follow-ups, like you said, giving a year prescription, I, no one no one should get a prescription without a follow-up 30 days later, especially for an SSRI cause sure. it takes about three to four weeks for sure. it to start taking effect. And it could have a horrible result. And then if you're taking it because of depression and then you realize, okay, that was, you know, if you're a firefighter and you're struggling and you're saying, okay, I'm at the end of my rope, but I'm going to try this this is, this is it. This is the last thing I'm going to do. And you go to your private practitioner and now the SSRI doesn't work Mm -hmm. and their private practitioner is not even following up with you. Plus not even giving you something that may even be you know, may not, um, you know, work against other things that you're you're taking or if you're on um, some other you know, natural stuff. So Mm -hmm. they don't have that education. So it's just, it's extremely dangerous and that Um, you're setting somebody up for failure. Whatever
0: happened to the Hippocratic Oath when it comes to that then? First, do no harm.
1: Because they don't feel like they're doing harm. They're legally allowed to prescribe it. Sure. They can see you're depressed or you're saying you're depressed, so why not?
0: It's easier just to hand you a pill and walk away than it is to actually work the problem. And this is where I wanna follow up real quick. Every month I'm in her office, every 30 days, I'm sitting in front of her and she makes the decision where to go next. Not necessarily me, but it's because of the assessment she does on me every time we talk. And I think that's important. And this again, follows up to what you and Bull and Marcos and I had just spoken about a little while ago about the neglect in following up with our first responders when it comes to post-treatment And that's something we can discuss if you'd like. We still need to talk about your involvement in Bright Life because this is something that our brothers and sisters need to hear. And again, we're offering you several avenues here, guys and girls. We're telling you there's plenty of options out there. And we want you to know it's not a one-size-fits-all arena, unfortunately, when it comes Mm -hmm. to mental health and addiction. This is important to have this dialogue. It's important to understand you're not alone. So tell us about Bright Life.
1: Basically, I've given up on, on the industry. Um, it's, a, it's a very difficult industry to be in, in Florida. And uh, I was looking, you know, let me see how, in, you know, other ways that I can help first responders. But down in my gut, I have always felt like it was very important for me for the past seven years since that FOP president said to me, um, and, and now with the collaborative, um, having them uh, open so many doors to allow me to walk in and just voice, you know, my knowledge and my willing to help um, anyone who asks for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when they don't ask for it, I you know, they, they might sneak me into a firehouse sometimes, <laughs> and talk to all the guys, but sure. they really are, there's one in particular they really want that me to talk to, but... Um, So I'd, it was a tough year last year, like you and I spoke. We did. And um, I was looking for other ways to uh, help first responders. And I got a phone call from a gentleman. His name is Mitch Bauman. And he gave me his philosophy for treatment as an owner. And um, it was a five-hour conversation. Everything he said, I was complete agreement for um he said well what do you want to do i said i want to build a first responder program um because it's needed i've been sending guys you know and girls for you know these many years and um there are certain things that each one could do a little bit better and i want to be i want to be who's doing it better because when i walk away from this from that industry um and doing other things with first responders, I need a place where I can send a first responder to and sleep that night.
0: That being said, when does a firefighter know? How? What are the signs? Where does it begin for that that first responder to know they need
1: help? So, by the time a first responder gets to um actually admit to someone else that they need help um, their world may be already falling apart when do they realize it that they need help that i don't know okay i would say um that i know that there's a lot of cynicism with every right um, with treatment centers um and um that oh they just you know I don't need to go into inpatient treatment, that's not what I need. Um, you know, I've just had two DUIs, it's not what I need. Um, and um, I'm just gonna go to DUI court, and mm-hmm. or DUI school, which is what I did last time after my DUIs, you know. So, um, you know, I tell them, look, treatment centers are run with by insurance, and it's not the treatment center that's okaying for you to come in because they want your money. Mm-hmm. It's the insurance company. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I teach this as often as I can. There's 16 criteria. Um, and then I ask even even uh, private practitioners, I, I show them the, the 16 things and I'll, I'll give you a couple of them. Yeah. Um, if you've been to an outpatient center, and it hasn't worked, you're still drinking or consuming the drugs. If your uh, health has suffered, because of the substances, if your finances are suffering because of um, the, the substances ha, have you, do you have legal issues because of substances has someone in your family or a friend told you to slow down or maybe you should stop mm-hmm. have you tried and haven't been able to stop on your own um, do you notice uh, a your tolerance increasing um, so there's a number there's 16 of them you only need two
0: just two just two, just
1: two. one for outpatient. Mm-hmm. Just two for inpatient, which means insurance is going to pay for you to go to treatment. Re- rem- remember, insurance never wants to pay. No, right? they just want your payments every month. Yes, they don't want to pay. For, they don't want to have to pay for any treatment. Mm-hmm. But you will be accepted into treatment by meeting just those two criteria, which is very important. Number one, because if you're meeting criteria, it means you need it because insurance is not gonna pay for something you don't need. Absolutely. Number not, yeah. two means and I lost number two. It <laughs> it ran right out it's of the It's okay. Head. Number two
0: ran. <laughs> Let's focus on something else real quick then. The work you do with the collaborative, training the clinicians, all right. The the program that's out there now that's making its way across the state and I know there's been i can't tell you an exact number i'm I'm guessing somewhere a couple hundred maybe more clinicians have been trained up to this point i'm sure right um this helps because i think one of the biggest stigmas we we face as first responders is why do we want to go to therapy why do we want to talk to people about our problems that don't understand us because the ap route is great and all but there's a limitation there. And we walk in as we are. Just remember talking to the layperson is in a sense no difference than talking to a clinician who's not skilled in how we act and how we deal and how we process. So what's a firefighter supposed to look for uh, in a program? What is a program designed for firefighters supposed to look like? So it, it's warming and accepting. It's 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 appealing to us and it it helps us walk or it gravitates, you know what I mean? What are we looking for in a program designed for first responders?
1: In a inpatient um, program for first responders, it would be like we spoke about earlier, um, where it is a full program just for first responders, um, trauma-based, best practice all around, meaning if, if the person needs Um, At at Bright Life, um, we do four to five individual therapy sessions a week. Mm -hmm. Um, That is going to make the greatest change because it's going to create insight where you're now one-on-one with somebody who actually are clinicians, either first responder or uh, military. So they know you, they were you, they are you, um, and they've been where you're at. Mm -hmm. And and then they continued and studied uh, to be a clinician. So um, trauma based full program, um, you know, as many individual therapy sessions, that's needed. Mm -hmm. um, So that you can really get to the nitty gritty. No one wants to go to treatment.
0: It is a tough decision.
1: Listen, the addicts that I have met are the most self-actualized people I've ever met in my entire life because treatment can you imagine being feeling completely broken walking into a center and someone saying look at all those sores that you've been trying to numb yourself Mm -hmm. so that you don't feel Mm
0: -hmm. right Mm -hmm.
1: now you can't numb yourself anymore you're not gonna numb yourself But we're gonna dig deep into that sore. We're gonna rip it open, and we're gonna grab in it, go in there, and look for the core reasons. Why are you choosing these behaviors? What are those thoughts? What are those, um, you know, what I call them, um, false, you know, false thinkings of when we were kids. Okay. Who knows? It may. Who knows what the reason is? For everyone, it's going to be different. Sure. Um, but. Could you imagine? You've been trying to numb yourself from these lesions of your entire life and now you're being told to do it sober. Yeah. And go in there and no, nothing to numb yourself and go in there and, and go as deep as you can to find all of those reasons and then work through them and talk about them can you imagine how difficult that must be?
0: I, it, it, no, I, I, I can't because I haven't been there myself in that sense. But my thought would be that would be probably beyond rock bottom for somebody because they're not they're not functioning anymore, and they're having to learn a new way of acceptance, life processing, pushing forward it never goes away okay we 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 understand and just like it was mentioned earlier I, I think we touched on the concept of surrendering right and and what surrendering truly means and it's not about just giving up right you know it was mentioned and i'll say it bull mentioned it we all sat here and listened it, and it was very impactful because he mentioned it's about laying not just laying down your weapons and you're surrendering from the moment you're not surrendering period but every day is a new opportunity to surrender and they're having to learn how to do that from day one of surrendering to the next day and the next day for the rest of their life on how to do that and they have to do that sober. And I I can't put words to that. I can only imagine the struggle that our brothers and sisters and everybody who has alcoholism and, and addiction issues might feel out there with that.
1: So I, um, when uh, every industry that I walk into, right, mm-hmm. when, when it was substance abuse, I walk into it as a scientist. I wanna know, you know, so I researched it. I, I wanted to know everything. And um, one of my closest friends in the industry, he's like my little brother, um, he'd been sober for 20 years mm-hmm. and I was like, and he told me one day, I surrender myself um, to i surrender my addiction to god every single morning like it's been 20 years joey have a glass of wine with me (laughs) and he's like he's like no like i like i i just can't and 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 so i didn't understand that so i went to a psychiatrist and i said why is that he kind of explained the physiology of it it was pretty cool he's like it's like a stovetop right Mm -hmm. and you just cook something and took it off and it's red and then um, it gets dark again, but it may not be, be cold. cold. It yeah. may still be hot Yeah, or warm. Well, your brain, when it comes to addiction, the neuronal pathways for addiction, whether it be, um, let's say you're addicted to alcohol, but the neuronal pathways that you have all connected to the alcohol, whether it's, okay, now I'm going to, um, you know, well, I'll smoke weed, but mm-hmm. I won't drink well, it's only gonna ignite the same center. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the so that's, then I understood. For him, it was a physiological thing. He just, he knew, because he said I had my first sip at the age of 13 and I was married to mm-hmm. alcohol. Mm-hmm. He actually, he got sober by the age of 19. He's never had a legal drink in his entire life. And You're he's kidding in his 40s me. now. Yeah, wow. isn't that interesting? Yeah. So, um, so a lot of times when we have firefighters or general population call us, say, I need help, I need to go into treatment, but I can only go two weeks, mm-hmm. but I can only go, you know, for this time, but I need to have my dog with me, but I need to have my phone with me, but we know, look, you're trying to dictate your treatment doesn't work that
0: way you have to surrender if you
1: have to surrender so the clinician would be like they're not ready they're not ready so i started researching well what makes it what makes um, treatment successful and um we were also having a lot of adults that did not want to go to treatment And mm-hmm. family was like they're gonna die they're mm-hmm. gonna die what do we do so there's some the marchman act in the state of florida so it was like so if they're not willing and we're making them do it and they have to be ready to surrender, then why are we making them do it if it's not gonna work anyway? You're just gonna keep them alive for another thirty days, which is great. Yeah. But so that's so I'm like, okay, well let me research this. Mm-hmm. And research says that the reason for going into treatment does has no correlation to end result.
0: Really? Which is
1: great news. Yeah. Because you can marchman ask somebody to go into treatment, you can court order them to go to treatment you can you know threaten their job for them to go to treatment whatever it is the actual difference is more the clinical part of the treatment it's not do you we have you know goat yoga or do we have you know uh, a masseuse who comes once sure, a week sure. and do i get to you know uh, lay out on the beach every weekend no, it's not about that. It's the it's not the aesthetics of the building either, although Bright Life is gorgeous. Um, it is about the clinical program. It is about are you digging deep into those sores, into those lesions? Are you getting to the core reason? Are you pulling it out? Are you dealing with it? And are you getting closure?
0: Amen. Amen. That's what it's about. That being said, we're going to go ahead and close with that. Tell us how we can reach out to Bright Life and tell us when the program's going to be up and running and ready.
1: The program is up and running already.
0: All right, good. So yes. tell us how to access it. Um,
1: you can give me a call and I will uh, give out any information. Um, give us an seeing. email
0: address we can reach out to you. How about that?
1: Okay. So, well, it is brightliferecovery.com okay. is the website. And my email is M as in Marie. Not Maria. Don't call me Maria. You'll get pinched. Marie, so it's M Guma, G-U-M-A, at brightliferecovery.com.
0: Take advantage of this, guys. Don't suffer in silence. Be ready to surrender and take every day as a new day and a new opportunity. Marie, thank you. This is going to be by far one of the one of the better episodes. This whole series we're doing on mental health, addiction and PTSD, I, I'm so excited about this and, and we're gonna push forward. We're gonna have uh, one coming up with Jason Patton and it's gonna be exciting. But thank you for what you do for us. Thank you for your work with The Collaborative, with Bright Life, bringing Marcos in, this guy right next to me who's been awesome this weekend. He, he loves the mustache, you can't argue that. So, again. That,
1: that's where the justice part comes in. That's
0: where the justice part comes because in? They
1: say, why i do this because my industry has failed you guys yeah and to a certain degree and if if you guys if we expected to have this the treatment that we're giving you as clinicians and as treatment centers if when you came to us when we were calling 911 yeah we expect to have the best treatment and save the, our life right yeah
0: absolutely um
1: well then i feel like my industry owes that And that should be the norm for for you guys as well. Rock on.
0: Thank you. So with that, keep your head on a swivel, guys. Take care of each other. Look out for each other. Be good to each other. And this series will continue on. And we're going to push forward. God bless. We'll see you on the next one. You just survived 30 minutes of online training with the Can-Man Radio Show. Did you remember to train your probie today? The Can Man knows. He knows everything. When that 2 a.m. lift assist drops, the Can Man will be thinking of you in his dreams.